This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, we celebrate some of the amazing things Canadians do in energy, oil and gas, with a look into carbon capture. What is carbon capture? It gets tossed about as a thing, but do we really know? Ben Rostra, a carbon capture expert and professor at University of Alberta, shares how we can trap emissions, how Canada does it better than anyone else in the world, and the massive projects that will make a big difference in fighting emissions. Therefore, responsibility is awesome in Canadian oil and gas and Canadian energy. What the hell should we watch this weekend? How about a bunch of friends getting... Uh, hurt doing some delightfully dumb stuff. Jackass Forever is finally out, and Steve Stebbing reviews the injury-prone yet strangely heartfelt movie. Steve gets into so much more, including Pam and Tommy on Disney+. Plus. Plus, are you okay with mugshots and more? This is the Shift Podcast. Are you okay with... Uh, you can answer too, 877-399-9898 if you are okay with mug shots. Uh, I like really weird ones where like the person chooses to do a weird face, whatever, regardless of whatever it is. Um, it's an, and when the name matches the face, the 90% of the time it's like a Florida man or woman. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it's just remember the lady that was named like crystal method or crystal meth remember yep. that and she got arrested for crystal meth i imagine her i imagine her mugshot fits the crime in a, an amazing way yeah very good all right bk mugshots yes or no uh they're necessary but they're never really flattering are they People's, no. no, they're never flattering. I, I guess they're not really high fashion, high projection sh- uh, shoots. But you know, well, yeah, they, like they don't pay attention to lighting at all. No, they really don't. And as a technical no. nerd like myself, it sometimes bothers me. <laughs> <laughs> Mugshots never really come from a good place. You know, it's not like one of those things. Well, guess what I got today? Or you know, you know why are you getting your haircut? Things like that. I gotta get a mugshot. It's not how people go about it. So they don't often come from a fantastic place to begin with. That's for sure. Now, it is one of the ways that people ask for help to find the bad guys. A previous mugshot. For example, Ryan uh, does something like steals some Lego or sneakers, right? And Officer Brendan Kelly wants to help us, wants help finding him because he's too busy listening to records to do his job. So what does he do? He publishes a mugshot of young Ryan and on the Internet, and on Facebook, and then someone goes, I know that guy. And then I turn him in for the reward. <laughs> this mugshot is helping police in a strange way. The convict in question is so good looking, it sort of broke the Internet. Here's more on the Hunkasaurus Rex, really, from CNN's Genie Mose. Those eyes, that jaw, those those eyes, that jaw, those lips. He's a convicted burglar who's now wanted for stealing hearts. When British police in West Yorkshire released this mugshot and appealed for the public's help, little did they realize how much his looks would appeal. If I find him, can I keep him? Gonna leave my door unlocked. 37-year-old Jonathan Cahill is so wanted, women are offering do-it-yourself discipline. I'll take him in. He'll be severely punished. 
People are acting like they think they're in Billie Eilish's song, Bad Guy. So you're a tough guy, like you're really rough guy. Cahill served time for burglary, then was released, and is now wanted for breaking the terms of his release. He's been called everything from the hot burglar to the fit felon. Um... Mugshot of UK fit felon sets hearts aflutter with more than 8,000 comments. Oh, my goodness. Come on. Now, um, first of all, acknowledge uh, my crush, Genimos, for being amazing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hot John was arrested and taken into custody after being wanted on recall to prison. (laughs) So, by the way, you weren't supposed to get let out. Um, West Yorkshire police announced on Twitter. Now, there's another guy. This happened to as well, where his mugshot, he was had like tattoos on his face and he was bald and he was so handsome. He got a modeling contract from it. He still he still models and he actually uh, acts in like really terrible B, B movie action movies. Really? But he's turned his life around thanks to a mugshot. Thanks this to a mugshot. This guy is objectively very good looking. Um, but uh, there was a poll that TMZ did and this guy actually beat the older the other uh, hot really? shot so he's he's i know um that's funny you know who i see when i see this guy hockey fans will get this if you don't watch hockey you might not you know who i see when i see this guy milan lucic uh, okay yeah a little no bit. yeah I, yeah yeah you're not wrong I, I think so oh good for him um i hope he if he gets caught he gets a modeling contract or something Good for you. Uh, make your money. <laughs> I'm surprised you can make money from that. Like, you can make money, but I mean, from the, I guess they're not actually making money from the mugshot. He looks good. You can make, anybody can make money off looking good. Anybody? Yeah. If you look good enough, yeah. There are millions of people on TikTok and across the world that have more money than me by doing wow. way less. Because they look really nice. I was going to say, there's a reason the three of us are on the radio. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, mm-hmm. not to mention, I think to support Ryan's point about being good looking can get you any job. Um, could run for prime minister. Okay. I'm sure it helped. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Are you okay with press conferences? Oh, yeah. Lately, they're insane. I mean, it's either a COVID one where it's the same 400 words repeated back just with new numbers, or it's a complete and utter other disaster. And it's just so cringy and a train wreck because people mm-hmm. don't know how to hold them anymore. I will say one of the best things that have happened to press conferences are, uh, I don't know what the actual proper term is, but people who do sign language because mm. it does two things. One, it helps people who are deaf or hard of hearing to mm-hmm. understand what's happening. And two, they're always incredibly animated and they're entertaining to watch. Mm-hmm. So like, I, I, I feel like I know the sign language guy that stands beside Dr. Dina Hinshaw in Alberta. Just seems like a really nice guy. Nice guy. Although often so animated, it's so good. It's distracting. And you're trying to figure right. out, okay, that, okay, that's gotta be that word. Okay. That's gotta be that word. Is you trying to figure it out? that I often miss what they're talking about um, by using my ears. So, because they're often so good. The mayor of LA has plenty of things to be excited about, like the Super Bowl coming. But Mayor Eric Garcetti had a bit of an oopsie, or as Ryan would call it, an oof, at his latest Mm -hmm. press conference. Take a listen. 
LA leaders are standing by their mask policy as we approach Super Bowl Sunday, despite the controversy surrounding L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti and Governor Gavin Newsom, who were maskless at last week's NFL championship game. Those local leaders held a news conference today outside SoFi Stadium where they laid out what fans could expect before the big game. But after they were done speaking, reporters peppered Garcetti and L.A. County Public Health Director Barbara Ferrer about this controversy. I wore my mask the entire game, and I, when people ask for a photograph, I hold my breath and I put it here, and people could see that. There's a 0% chance of infection from that. The NFL will provide every fan a KN95 mask before entering the stadium on Super Bowl Sunday. That's a lot of masks. Yeah. So that's where they are. That's why I can't find them. You go to the Super Bowl, that's online. Where they all are. Yeah, 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 the NFL bought them all. Uh, that story is from NBC. Fans at mass outdoor gatherings are required to wear masks unless they're actively eating under Los Angeles County mandates and Sophie Stadium rules. So Pictures of the 73,202 fans who attended Sunday's NFC Championship game seem to show very limited mask wearing overall. Well, I, I it's hope, the same thing for hockey games. I hope they held their mm-hmm. breath then, like the mayor there, because that's the yeah. mayor. Setting so a good example. Yeah, zero percent chance of infection too, because he's a he's a <laughs> sure he's a doctor. He can back up that statistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, when you watch the TV game, the game's broadcast on TV though, you always see that one person, right? They've either got it under the nose or it's under their chin, and they're like, "Yeah," full on screaming, right? And then mm-hmm. there's the person. Then you see the other person going the other way, who's got the mask. They pull it down, put it in one piece of popcorn, put it up, right? Like I guess it goes both ways. It'll be interesting to watch the Super Bowl and see if anybody actually puts the mask on. But I, I would speculate, Ryan, because you're curious if you want to buy some KN95s, you might be able to get some real cheap online after the Super Bowl from people who never wore theirs. Could be a thing. Are you okay with? Are you okay with pillow fights? Yes, I am. I'm pretty good at pillow fights. I'm not going to lie. We used to set up a fort and uh, we took the pillow fights very seriously in the O'Donnell household, whether it was my brother or friends. It was uh, it was like a rite of passage for a sleepover. Hell yeah. Pillow fights. No, no. Um, as a child, I was I've always been a pacifist. So I've always been for diplomacy and negotiation to the end. I will never engage in a pillow fight unless i absolutely have to you see as a divorce person which my perspective is different than both of yours i don't see pillow fights the same way you see pillow fights anymore like you guys are romping around and having jolly good times you know flinging pillows at each other's heads while brendan sits in the corner with a notepad and a pencil and tries to negotiate an end to the warfare to me, I see it as couples literally fighting over the pillows and the blankets and the bed. Like, as a divorced person, I think that that's what you see here. You're like, oh, yeah, this is the hogs the bed, snores, steals the pillow, cool side of the pillow, warm side of the pillow conversation. And I realize as I say that, that's very pessimistic of me. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the way life goes. It might just be one uh, one sport every kid in Canada has played. Maybe it should be an Olympic sport. A classic example of a silly fight. But... If you ever thought you were really good at pillow fights, um, you can finally put your skills to test in Florida. What does it mean to be from Florida? Florida. Straight drill. 
Yes, one of our favorite places in the world. A man in Florida has launched a professional pillow fight league. Nice. The Pillow Fight Championships took place in Florida on January 29th, where 16 men and 8 women fought for the two titles. Fighters win by hitting an opponent in the head the most times with a two-pound pillow during three 90-second rounds. The world needs a pillow fight right now, so we're doing it, and um, here we are. Telecom entrepreneur Steve Williams launched the league with $350,000 of his own money. We've made this much. That may change. Videos of his fighters have gone viral. Saturday night, he's gambling on a live pay-per-view at $12.99 a ticket. How much do they get paid? Uh, the fighters get $250 just to fight. Uh, the winner will get $5,000. A lot of people think it's dumb, but it's actually fun and challenging. What surprised me about pillow fighting is the amount of cardio you need to outlast. You can do 360 um, rounds, which is like a twist. And when you twist, yeah. you get more points. What's it like? Well, yours truly may be a grandma... But I still got game. Sort of. Oh. Um, I have questions. That's from NBC. One contestant was Marcus Brimage, Conor McGregor's first opponent opponent in the UFC octagon. Oof. So I have questions here. First of all, am I the only one that was put off by a two-pound pillow? That feels like a pretty heavy pillow. So they're not only two pounds. They actually have like special grips. There's handles like sewed in so that you have a proper grip on the pillow. It's not just like, you know, the old school where you try to stuff it to the one side, grab it by what the leftover pillowcase. These are like, these are weapons of war here. And that would hurt. Two pounds to the face getting whipped at you by an MMA fighter. Hello. How? For five thousand dollars. If it's twelve fifty on a pay per view and all the costs that go into that and the amount of money that's gonna get generated out of that, two hundred fifty dollars for fighting and five thousand dollars, I mean that seems a little out of balance to me. Am I the only one there? No, no, not at all. Not at all. Wait till they get a big network T V contract though, then they'll Yeah. Yeah. Well yeah. opportunity does knock. I mean you too could be the host of the Pillow Fight Network, much like Joe Rogan did all the MMA stuff in the UFC. And then maybe you too could have your podcast. $100 million a year. Huh? Oh, Spotify will implode if I ever get a podcast. <laughs> Are you okay with masks? Are you okay with masks? Um, let's talk about like maybe like the superhero kind or like the. You know, like the, hey, the cool kind. Yeah. Right. You don't want to talk about um, can 95s? That, no, know? I don't want to talk ooh, about can 95s. Ooh, ooh. I wear those every day. I wish I had a really cool like mask for a costume that I could wear to comic conventions. I wish I had one of those. Like a handmade, like a Star Wars one. Oof. Like a Stormtrooper helmet. Mm -hmm. Count me right in. I'm waiting for the button. Really? I'm just stalling for it at this point. Which one? This one? I'm Batman. Oh, I thought you were going to play the nerd one. I'm a, the Batman one is a pleasant surprise. Oh, very good. Um, <laughs> so um, there are very few people um, that would refer to this, like Ryan wants superheroes. There are very few people here that would refer to this particular person as a superhero. 
represent. I, I will. I will. I will ask that he be he be disciplined for that. First of all. First of all. Hold on. Let's first. first I'm just hoping to get an answer to the other questions about Mr. Barr and others who have disproven a lot of I gave you the answer. Point of order. The answer that I gave you is they didn't bother to interview a single witness. Just like you, they don't want to know the truth. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. It's not funny. Rudy Giuliani right there, former New York mayor, former Donald Trump lawyer, and all-around Internet meme Rudy. Well, Rudy is trying to soften his image after all of the lawsuits and things that have gone on. Now, he, he started out as a real champ, right? Long ago. I mean, he fought organized crime. He did all kinds of cool things. It was pretty much downhill the last 10 years, that's for sure. And he, he got himself tangled up into well, some really bad press conference scheduling, let's just say that, and mm-hmm. um, completely com- claim that Donald Trump won the presidency, that's for sure. So how do you capitalize now, or how desperate are you to make money if you end up on a TV show like The Masked Singer? Um, the TV show has guests sing while they're in a costume under a mask. And the judges try to guess who is underneath the cowling of the mask. During last week's taping, this is just the taping, hasn't been on TV yet, of the season seven premiere, former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani was unmasked as one of the contestants. Insane. Deadline. And TMZ report this. He was a contestant on this show. Following the reveal... Uh, Jong 52, Thick 44, both walked off their judges, the stage in protest of Donald Trump's former attorney even being there, according to the news outlets. Fellow judges Jenny McCarthy and Nicole Scherzinger reportedly remained on stage after the reveal, where they briefly chatted with Mr. Giuliani. Mr. Jong and Mr. Thick later made their return to the stage, though it's unclear how long they were gone, according to um, Deadline's reporting. So, Rudy Giuliani is doing reality TV shows. I mean, I saw that coming. That's, I mean, this is what Donald Trump did. Of course, he's going to go to reality. Where else is he going to go? He can't be a lawyer anymore. So mm-hmm. I'm not surprised that he's trying to get on TV. I'm just shocked that it was the masked singer. This is a this is a pretty big show. And uh, I know for sure Ken Jong, one of the hosts, very funny guy, is a very left-leaning dude, very outspoken on Twitter, and I'm no surprise that he would walk off on Giuliani. So I wonder if the producers got Giuliani for this reason, just to watch him. 100%. This is the reaction they wanted. Now everyone's talking about it. We're talking about it. Everybody's talking about it. Can you imagine going to work and being set up by your own producers like that? I would be livid. I'd be so mad. That's unbelievable. Um, uh, we don't uh, own the show, so we can't play what the singing is like because it no. hasn't been broadcast. So. Oh, is he going to sing? He sings I, on yeah. it? Yeah. Oh. Well, there's actually, have you ever seen the video of him <sighs> and Donald awesome. Trump in drag singing together, which exists? There is a video of really? Rudy Giuliani and Trump in drag. Uh, one, uh, it might be both of them. One of them for sure is in drag, and they're singing and partying together. So he's no stranger to it. It's just it, under the context of a giant silly monster costume on a 
reality. Mm-hmm. Like, can you imagine me, the audience? Taking, I wonder if some hair dye came off. I too was just going to say, I wonder if any motor oil was <laughs> running down his face. This is the Shift Podcast. One of the things that we as Canadians don't do is celebrate the amazing. We're terrible at it. Um, when you look at the energy industry in Canada, I am a fan of the energy energy industry in Canada. And I can tell you this, that I did move to Fort McMurray in the early 80s. So I did see it when it was really kind of gross um, and what it was and how far it's come to be absolute leaders in, in what happens in and around the world. And that doesn't excuse everything. And it doesn't mean that everything's perfect yet. But we as Canadians can be really, really proud at the way that business has improved year over year over year and our environmental responsibilities in that. Now, that's the key word, though, isn't it? Right. Responsibility, because what's the opposite of responsibility really is recklessness. And um, there's been an awful lot of recklessness in and around the world. Some articles have come out that we fumbled upon that really don't matter and and that's not why we're here, but it did inspire conversation. It was conversation about uh, carbon capture. And as Ryan and I were sitting here, we're kind of like, do you even know what carbon capture is? And I was like, well, yes and no. I mean, I've been around some documents and whatnot, but like, is it like a balloon (laughs) underground? Like, is it just a hole they pump it? Like, I don't really know if it works or not. So that's where we really started without intention other than a little bit of curiosity and inquisitiveness. And that takes us to Ben Rostron. Ben has lived carbon capture since before carbon capture was a catchy name and it was like some geology, hydro, gas, something fancy name thing um, with projects from long ago. Uh, hey, Ben, thanks for being here on the shift, man. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, so yeah, so you're, are, would you call yourself the, are you like the air nerd, the rock nerd or the water nerd under there? Which one is it for you? I think it's water. Yeah. Water's the magic, is it? Water's the magic. Yep. So, oh, see that changes things because I just like, I'm always so curious about what happens underneath the earth with all the water. <laughs> That's a whole other thing. We should bring you back. Um, the, tell me, because this started long ago Let's back to the very beginning of what is carbon capture and where did it begin? Well, the idea of carbon capture, right, is to um, capture the emissions or the release of carbon um, from various facilities. So industrial facilities, oil and gas facilities, um, both pre-combustion and post-combustion. So you can catch carbon from downstream of power plants and facilities that are generating carbon that, or you can catch carbon that's emitted as part of an industrial process that doesn't involve burning something to make emit large amounts of carbon. So the idea of capturing that is to take that carbon that would otherwise be vented into the atmosphere and uh, do something better with it than venting it into the atmosphere. Okay. So it has a new home, has a new purpose. purpose. Um, I've always thought of it kind of like composting a little bit, right? Like we take our banana peels and our coffee grounds and we put it into a place and it gets tossed about and turns into really rich, um, you know, dirt for our gardens and carbon capture, although it's the principles are completely different. I sort of thought about it from that sort of same perspective is that we're sort of taking this thing, we're putting it underground, it's getting mixed up and used elsewhere, or is that just wildly inaccurate? Um, I think that's a, you know, that's a good analogy. Um, taking it, putting it underground, 
um, then trying to decide, you know, what happens to it underground. We know long term that it will eventually solidify. And so the real discussion is about what happens between when you put it in the ground and when it eventually turns to rock in thousands of years or long time, long time from now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the idea of the acronyms are carbon capture and storage. And then the newer one is carbon capture utilization and storage. And so the idea of using this to make products that would store the carbon in a solid form or, uh, you know, some of the carbon storage projects are, are associated with oil and gas. So you pump carbon down and that frees up oil and gas to come to the surface. So there's quite a broad spectrum of sort of carbon storage options that exist in, in the world. Uh, SAG D mining, a pressure steam and all that stuff pumped underground to pump, push oil up th- that sort of technology. I'm oversimplifying, but just, just for the clarity, um, is carbon, uh, part of that process yet where it's going underground there or is they haven't reached no, that? Not yet. No, way. no, no. I think the, the two kind of options that are widely used. So, so, you know, one of the debates in the carbon capture storage is that Carbon, uh, so using CO2 for enhanced oil recovery has been around since the 60s, 50s and 60s in oil and gas. It's not a new thing to be using carbon to get more oil out of the ground, so injecting carbon in the ground. And, and where it kind of got modified is that most of those oil and gas operations that have existed for decades are actually getting carbon out of the ground, they actually drill wells to get CO2 that's then pumped to surface to then, um, you know, get more oil out. And that's been going on in the oil and gas industry for decades. I mean, Hmm. 50 years. And so the, the, the idea that, you know, this carbon capture storage is unproven and untested. If you take apart, if you take away the anthropogenic carbon from the fact that people have been doing this for decades, that's just, that's just not true at all. We know yeah. how to inject carbon. We know how to, you know, do that. What's novel about the sort of the, you know, the modern era of CCS is that taking anthropogenic carbon, so emitted from coal-fired power plants, emitted from coal gasification plants, from industrial facilities, and using that to put it in the ground instead of emitting it at the surface. That's the real novel part. So when I hear someone say, oh my God, this is untested and unproven, I just, you know, every time it's a sort of grimace and smile, it's just not true at all, right? Um, we've been doing this for a long time. We know how to do this. And um, so, yeah. The process is, is it more like the carbon doesn't get created in the process of storing the carbon, does it? Or does it a little bit and that gets created too? Or Nope, nope. Um, so the idea is that, um, you know, you're going to capture this stuff and you're going to put it back down in the ground and um, you're going to monitor it and make sure that it stays in the ground. That's really what everyone is trying to do. And that's the novel part that separates these sort of old EOR gas projects, CO2 projects from sort of the newer ones is that, you know, the oil companies back in the day um, in the United States and all around the world are injecting CO2 and they were getting oil production and, Many of them, not all, but many of them didn't have sort of really, really extensive, detailed um, public assurance monitoring programs to make sure that it actually was not coming to the surface. It was sort of like, trust us and, you know, we know what we're doing. 
and you mentioned before about recklessness and 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 moving forward to a you know a more public assurance and so proving that yeah in fact you know it's been injected in the ground and we've monitored for it at the surface in every possible way we can to sort of provide assurance that yeah it's it's staying down there like we think it is is it actually let me ask this question first where does it go <laughs> like is it going into where does the it go well the okay ground? so that's a really like, good question so <laughs> the way to think about the subsurface you talked about composting and putting carbon into the ground and the way to think about the subsurface is more like a giant sponge that's the best oh. way to think about it so if you imagine sponges with bigger holes smaller yeah. holes really really tiny holes you know and so the, the subsurface is full of water and so when we pump carbon down in the in the ground, we're, we're really putting it into a sponge that exists mm-hmm. over large areas. And some of these layers that, you know, we work on uh, exist from sort of across all of Alberta and Saskatchewan, Manitoba, North of there, you know, these, these layers go across the provinces. Mm-hmm. So they're vast areas of the subsurface that's deep. I mean, we're talking a kilometer or more of depth below the land surface that these layers of rock have space in them. So they're full of water right now. And so um, when we put carbon in there, imagine the sponge just squeezes a little bit and we squeeze a little more carbon into the space and it stays down there. And sitting above those layers are again, layers of rock that have really, really, really small holes in them. And so anything that goes down in the ground doesn't move up doesn't you know it moves sideways very very slowly but um, when we pump something into the ground it's not like it's um you know going into a giant empty cavern that exists from sort of calgary to winnipeg it's it's a layer of rock that's full of full of water and we're going to add a bit of carbon to it yeah i think that it gets confusing when you hear other stories about um nuclear material and using old mine shafts to store old uranium rods and mm-hmm. you know flooding them and putting rods in there and and those kinds of things create a much more simple understandable storage unit if you will um to understand and carbon capture isn't just quite so tangible i like how you described it with a sponge um that that makes a little bit more sense like that it seems to somehow make it more like it computes better when you look at it yeah. that way um, so I guess earthquakes or any of that stuff, does that like, like tectonic movement, any of those kinds of changes in it? Does, is that a problem yeah, well, for you so guys? It's a good question to talk about earthquakes. And so, you know, it's like anything, there are naturally occurring earthquakes. Um, fortunately in Western Canada is pretty stable in terms of earthquakes. So we don't see a lot of natural earthquakes in Western Canada. That's just the geology is such that it's, that's the way it is. We're not at a plate boundary. We're in the middle of a big continent and lots of nerdy technical reasons why. Now, so when you then start talking about injection of CO2, then you have to worry about uh, the whole stress state in the subsurface and blah, 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 blah. Uh, And so we have to be careful that we don't inject too much too fast to create artificial earthquakes. And this is one of the key things that's done in CO2 injection projects is to, you know, you have to measure the stresses so that you don't inject too high volumes and you don't cause any problems. But, uh, and then we monitor for them. So we're, I'm involved in a project called the Aquastore project where we put in 600 seismometers at the surface and turned them on and measured continuously while we're injecting. And 
you know, we've been measuring for years and nothing. In fact, we were accused of, you know, are your seismometers actually working because you don't see anything. And so then we had to go and, you know, make sure we did some tests to show that, yeah, you know, they're working fine. There's just nothing happening whatsoever. So it's one of the biggest things the public fears is, you know, a big earthquake being caused by, by injection. And there are examples in the world of, you know, people, jurisdictions that are doing injection and causing earthquakes. But if you look carefully at what they're doing, there's no comparison to what is going on in these, these, you know, very instrumented regulated spots. Yeah. Well, again, the uh, collapsing of some of the storylines of what is fracking versus what is carbon capture. Right. And then it's like, well, every time you're putting a hole in the ground, it's causing these problems and it's not, it's not really the case then at all. So, okay. This is, this is so curious to me. I love this. Um, now carbon, we hear an awful lot about carbon and the enviro conversation and da, 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 da. Um, do like, is there enough carbon? Like how much carbon capture is going on? Is it enough to even put a, like, is it a drop in the bucket? Is it enough to even really contribute a whole bunch? You know, what kind of tough question magnitude tough can question. it fa- function at? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think so. There's, so the short version of it is that um, I think if you look around the world, there are a couple of dozen projects operating at the million ton scale and above. So 1 million tons a year, 2 million, 3 million. In Canada, we have um, the Quest projects doing a couple million tons a year. The new Enhance kind of project is at that scale. So those are those are serious projects when you can put away a million tons or 2 million tons a year. Um, you know, the, the CO2 reduction problem, the tar- you know, federal government targets, we have to do 100 million ton, 200 million ton reduction. So um, it's kind of chicken and the egg, right? You could say, well, you know, a million tons, does that do anything? Uh, and the answer would be, well, a million tons compared to we need to do 200, well, you need to do better, right? But the flip side of that is that, um, you know, a million tons going down a borehole is a significant amount of carbon being put away that would otherwise have been vented in the atmosphere. And we're right at the tipping point right now where with the carbon taxes that are out there, the technology development that's undergone in the last 15 years, we're right at the break-even point where we can, you know, do this cost-effectively at a large scale. So what you're seeing right now, literally (laughs) happening now, um, is that you're going to see a a whole number of projects come online in the next three to five years that are going to increase that number to something that is what we would call, you know, significant. You're going to see multiple um, million ton plus a year projects come online and they're, they're cost effective and Mm -hmm. um, they're ready to go. And they're, you know, it's not something that's going to take 20 years to do. I mean, these projects are ready to go in a year or two and they'll be making an impact within a couple of years. So it's a good uh, news story, really good news story. It is. It does sound like a good news story because there's this other piece that um, that you had shared with um, about uh, a coal plant that is doing all of this to a point where it's it's neutral, isn't it? Like, I mean, because yep. um, that seems like with all of the resources we have today and the fact that Canada is a massive, you know, our, our coal port in Vancouver is uh, so big. 
Um, this seems like a fantastic way to clean things up, you know, for 50 years or so and on the carbon front for sure. So tell me about that and, and how it's, I imagine it's like a little vacuum, like a scrubber um, sure. that well, basically sucks the carbon out of the, the coal plant. So the project you're talking about is, um, is called the Boundary Dam uh, CO2 sort of capture and storage project. And that's in Southern Saskatchewan. And as you may or may not know that uh, Saskatchewan and Alberta are both heavily reliant or used to be heavily reliant on coal-fired power. And so the Boundary Dam project was the world's first, um, basically large scale, so commercial scale, 135 megawatt, 150 megawatt power plant that uh, was uh, a carbon capture unit was put on the vent stack. So capturing mm-hmm. the emissions out the vent stack and then um, compressing that and then using that for both uh, EOR. So part of that stream goes to uh, enhanced oil recovery project in Weyburn. And part of that stream goes into uh, an injection well where the carbon is put away for, for long, long periods of time. And so, you know, the good news story about that is that to people that say this has never been done, it has been done and it's done in Canada and the world has come to see that facility. And I think, you know, they have a tour group that all they do is tour governments and people from all around the world to see that, in fact, you can do this. We've done it and uh, it works. Now, the flip side of that is, you know, every time that plant goes down for a day of maintenance or <laughs> anything happens, all you hear about is, oh, man, you know, carbon capture doesn't work because the plant's only running at, you know, 90% or 95% capacity. But the flip side is that any industrial process, of course, has to have maintenance. And when they they were the world's first to do that. And so the very first year or so, they had a whole bunch of operational things they had to develop and overcome and figure out. And um, so, they, you know, if you look in the media, that, that facility gets a bad gets a bad some people say well it's a complete failure because it costs all this money and it doesn't do anything but the flip side of it it's been chugging away for you know five years or so now it's put a lot of co2 that would have again gone in the atmosphere uh away in the subsurface that's uh, done and then that the people that have done that project have said well based on the learnings from that they estimate that we could do it again at you know a fraction of the cost and have all those learnings be used again at another facility so um again really good news story most people don't aren't even aware of that and one of your comments earlier was you know is canada a leader in this well you know (laughs) that's a world leading project that was done um long before anybody else had done it elsewhere so a good news story for canada and you know, I think the bigger news story that people forget is that Canada is a relatively small emitter of CO2. And I know that, you know, maybe your listeners are going to start yelling when I say that, but Canada <laughs> only emits, you know, one and a half, 1.8% of the world's CO2. But the idea of taking a Canadian project and showing that it works in Canada and then exporting that to a place that has a huge emission. So like exporting that technology or that learnings to China or United States, or elsewhere, India, where they do have these ginormous emissions of CO2, that's probably a bigger win for the CCS community than, you know, a million ton a year project in southern Saskatchewan. Um, So that's really the, the, you know, you got to take that and expand that to elsewhere where they can do that. 
Uh, ben Rostron is uh, petroleum hydrology um, um, uh, expert, faculty of science, earth and atmospheric sciences uh, at the University of Alberta. Now, there are projects that you can't talk about um, because they're, you know, they're off they go, uh, confidential and whatnot. But I will ask you this. Are you excited about the future in this world um, and where it's headed and some of the things that are unrolling? Absolutely excited, right? We've been working on this for almost 20 years now, and mm -hmm. um, we've had it go up and down, you know, with various winds that blow one way or the other. And I think that um, seeing where things are right now is uh, is pretty exciting times to be. Um, I know the government of Alberta is entertaining uh, submissions the end of the month for, uh, mm -hmm. you know, operators to submit their plans about how they would use the subsurface. And uh, I think they're going to do some analysis. And so I think you're going to see um, some pretty exciting things coming up very quickly in the next you know, few months, year, year or so. Yep. I'm looking so, forward yes, to it. Pretty exciting. Uh, well, you know what? There's so been so much that's gone on and, and Ben, my invitation to you and your colleagues, um, when you, when you're getting together and you're talking about these things, we would like to fly this flag of Canadian success stories. I mean, this is not only a carbon success story, it's a Canadian research story. Uh, it's a Canadian development um, success story and uh, innovation leader stuff. So please pass it on to your, to your colleagues and your friends and, and let them know that, you know, I think we can do a better job as a guy who's been in Alberta on and off for decades and decades. Um, I can tell you this, that Alberta has done a terrible job celebrating the successes and the victories of what it looks like. Those old images of open pit mines that still get tossed about versus what SAG D mining looks like in today's world, you know, uh, as a good example, um, outside of all the politics around it, you know, I think we as Albertans and we can demand more of um, our institutions to be able to promote the good. Uh, and, and I think it starts by conversation just like this, Ben. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, yeah. the vision that, you know, a few years ago when the government put up some money for, you know, to promote this, um, that really pushed things forward a long way. And it, it's, I've never seen, you know, a real positive spin on that. And I think that's, that's unfortunate because it is, uh, it is a good news story for us and, well, and, and for the rest of the world. As a guy who was around carbon capture, when those proposals were happening, there is just a lot of capitalist excitement to create industry and develop what does this look like and how can we take full advantage of this? I mean, I think there's equally as much excitement about all the sunshine Calgary and Southern Alberta gets, um, you know, and solar panels. I mean, this really did make industry get excited about what was possible. And, and that, that was cool to watch. So hopefully we'll keep it going. Hey, I agree. Yep. All right. Great stuff. Ben Rostron, um, amazing conversation. I need to learn about this underwater tables, underground water tables thing. So I don't even know why. I just want to know all of the things. So Invite let's me do back that again. Next time. Yep. Yeah. We, we're going to rebook Ben right away so we can talk about that. I have, look, I can't explain it. All right. Leave me alone. I'm just curious about all of it. Uh, thanks so much for being here, Ben. Appreciate it. You're very welcome. This is the Shift Podcast. It is what the hell she will watch this weekend with Steve. 
coming up for you in a couple of minutes here, we are going to have the AV Club. We're talking about the movie Milk with Sean Penn. Um, Steve, how are you doing, buddy? Not too bad. How are you doing, Shane? I'm good, thank you very much. I um, I would like to just get rolling here because you literally sure. walked out of our first clip. And so let's hear Jackass Forever. A lot of people ask, what will Jackass be like once we're older? Well, it'll get more mature. The faster you pedal your bike, the faster the other guy's hand goes back. You said it wasn't going to feel like anything. Concussions aren't great, but as long as you have them before you're 50, it's cool. And Knoxville's 49, so we're good. Uh, it's, it's so childish and so wonderful at the same time. And these guys literally have gone through life altering injuries to make these movies. Absolutely. And there is a, obviously a built in audience for this movie, for these movies. Uh, and I, I mean, at the heart of it all, it's stunts and laughter and, and just crazy antics. And honestly, the most consistent franchise ever made. All four Jackass movies are very, very, very much consistent with each other. They all are packed with laughs. They're nonstop. There's no drag to them whatsoever. And I don't know. There's like a weird heart and camaraderie to these movies as well. And you can really feel the friendship of these dudes. And I mean, I've been I've been watching these guys for over 20 years now, including the CKY videos in which they they came from. And um, yeah, it was really nice to see them back in what could be the final movie. But they've said themselves that they don't ever plan for things to be the final anything. And they just kind of goad each other back into doing things again. Uh, They seem to do that. Can we all agree, though, at least I'm begging you to agree that the best of all the jackass jokes was the most of the simple ones, which was hiding in the bushes with the air horn at the golf course? (laughs) that is definitely a good one and i i I really love them screwing with the general public i always think that's really funny and i really dig johnny knoxville dressing up as the old man and doing some of those sounds i think they're so funny yeah good stuff steve stebbing what the hell should we watch this weekend and steve stebbing.ca up next the long night just as a serpent sheds his skin so must the world be cleansed of sin Mr. Caldwell, hello! So that the next renewal can begin. Smells like something died in here. Let's just get out of here. This whole thing is weird. I don't know what it is about this house. I have to stay. All right, tell us about it, Steve. Yeah, this is some of that occult mystery horror. Something I really kind of dig within horror is is the occult stuff. But basically, this follows a girl that's uh, living in uh, New York uh, and struggling to figure out what her past is. So her and her fiance head south uh, into the southern states to stay at an Airbnb So because she's got a lead to where her family is. As soon as they get to this Airbnb, though, um, this cult kind of descends on them, you know, complete with wearing animal skulls and all that kind of creepy stuff. And this film is very much uh, based on its visuals and stuff and would fit in uh, in a watch with like films like Mandy or color out of space, but it's got uh, scout Taylor Compton in it who played Laurie Strode in Rob zombies, Halloween films. And the girl screams her 
guts out in this film, like just puts it all on the line. So her performance for as a horror fan is worth watching alone. Uh, well, the scary movies, that's what the guy likes, man. Can't, uh, <laughs> can't deny that who we are, the uh, chronicle of racism in America. We had been on a path toward racial justice. That was amazing. There was the civil rights act, the voting rights act. We were at a tipping point. We're 50 years later now. Once again, America is having to look at issues of race dead in the eye. And once again, we are at a tipping point. And the question for all of us in this room is, what are we going to do about it? All right, what are we going to do about it, Steve? Good show? Yeah. Yeah, this is a really interesting documentary because uh, in a in a certain way, it kind of play, plays like the Inconvenient Truth um, style of of talking about racism in America and and uh, uh, certain myths and and certain misconceptions and things that were buried, um, like the real motivations in the Civil War, uh, everything uh, around around slavery, around around how many slaves were freed after the Civil War. Uh, the burying of the Tulsa massacre, which many Americans uh, and even people around the world didn't even know about uh, until a lot of people until the Watchmen depicted it in the first episode of, of that HBO series. Uh, but it's uh, civil rights lawyer Jeffrey Robinson that basically tells this through a presentation in front of an audience that's almost looks like a TED talk and everything, but as well as him kind of being the man on the street and everything and, and uh, going through America through some very interesting uh, landmarks and everything in black history. What the hell should we watch this weekend with Steve Stebbing? It's The Shift. I'm Shane Hewitt. Next on the list of shows that Steve says, Steve, Steve says, oh, dear brain Friday, <laughs> uh, that we should watch this weekend, Raising Dion, season two on the Netflix. Time to clean up the neighborhood. Oh. We about to kick it up a notch. Your job is to go to school. And be a good kid, not fight crime. I'm a superhero. One step at a time. That's why you're getting training at Biona, so you can learn how to control your powers. I'm Tevin. You need training. I'll see you in action. Okay, uh, take it, leave it to America to um, capitalize on capitalizing on training the young people on capitalizing on superhero movies. Yeah, right. Uh, and this one, I mean, they're going for the broader audience on this one, too, because it is a very much a family driven show uh, for everyone that's already burned through all three seasons of Lost in Space and other uh, Netflix family shows. Uh, and I, I mean, it feels a little cheesy at times, almost like uh, like a family channel movie. Uh, and the score really bothers me, like the, the way they do the music in this one. But it's still an interesting story because I really ha I'm, I'm a sucker for origin stories. And uh, for this this kid to kind of like slowly develop his powers and everything is very interesting to watch. And it was produced and co-stars Michael B. Jordan, who I really enjoy as an actor as well, who generally makes some good choices, uh, except for Fantastic Four. We won't get into that. But yeah, I mean, there's two seasons of this out now. It's definitely a sleeper family hit. But uh, the people that that are that have been watching have been raving about it. Cool, SteveStebbing.ca. Last but not least, here on the list, we've got more stuff that Steve says we should be watching this week. Well, actually, that's not true. Sometimes you tell us what we shouldn't watch. In all fairness, <laughs> um, it's true. Pam and Tommy, 
This is not the old movie that you saw on the internet. This is a different one. <laughs> Who's this guy? That's Tommy Lee's the drummer from Motley Crue. Where did you get this? Just, just keep going forward. Hang on. Uh, keep keep fast forwarding. Uh, okay. Holy shit! That's Pamela Anderson. Yeah. Just keep going. So, it's a movie about that movie, mm-hmm. Steve Stemming. Yeah, it's a, it's a, well, no, it's a series. It's an eight episode series. And uh, basically, this is about how the tape got out into the public, essentially. But it's also kind of telling the story of Pam and Tommy's meeting and whirlwind kind of romance and quick marriage and everything uh, at the same time. And uh, I mean, uh, uh lucy oh sorry um lily james sorry is the is pamela anderson in this one and it's uncanny like you there's some shots in this where i'm like that is pamela anderson like i cannot separate it in my head it's that well done and sebastian stan plays tommy lee and while um some of the the face stuff isn't really exactly tommy lee the voice the mannerisms the attitude it's all there and he is very much tommy lee in this one uh and it was produced and co-stars seth rogan and seth rogan is a very pivotal role in this one because he is a disgruntled contractor that worked for tommy lee that kind of broke in and robbed him and got said tape out into the world do you find there are more series i mean series are series make you tune in longer so mm-hmm. now that we're watching streaming, and they're producing, I think, more series versus movies to make us tune in longer versus a two-hour movie. I miss movies. I think there's too many series now. Um, I would, I would agree. It depends in the kind of long-form story that you're trying to tell. If you're able to engage and have the same sort of dense con, uh, kind of content episode after episode rather than feeling like you're just making a movie into a 10 episode series that feels stretched so stretched thin by the end that you wonder why they padded everything up with this kind of nonsense it's a very fine line i think thanks for listening to the shift podcast make sure you subscribe rate and review the show and share with anyone you like get it on apple podcast google podcast spotify and curiouscast.ca
Help is on the way. Angela Bassett and Peter Krause return in an all-new season of 911 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.